Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. Welcome back to my co-host, Julie Green, who's Professor of District Nursing and Head of School for Nursing at Keele University. Hello, Julie. Hello, Rachel. And welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Julie, as well as um, being a member of our Professional Nursing Committee, you're chair of the District and Community Nursing Forum. You were actually last on the podcast in April, it doesn't seem that long ago, uh, when we were talking about community nursing. What's changed for you since then? I mean, I think we've been very lucky in terms of the publicity around um, community nursing, and it's very relevant to our discussions today. I think a workforce that's under pressure with ramping up demands out there in the community. So still got those challenges and still um, trying to raise the voice of district and community nursing at every opportunity. Thanks, Julie. And I know you do that really effectively. So uh, this week, the controversial health and care bill is making its way through Parliament. And so we're looking at what changes it will bring about and how they may impact on nursing. At a time when the RCN is campaigning for fair pay for nursing and safe staffing for patients, we can see the need for political action. But can politics and the profession mix? To discuss all this, we have two very special guests. So first of all, introducing Andy Cowper, who's editor of Health Policy Insight. Hello, Andy. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for inviting me to take part today. And where are you speaking to us from, Andy? I'm speaking to you from Hampton in southwest London. So Andy, can you tell us a bit about Health Policy Insight and sort of a bit about where your interest in health policy comes from? Yes, I, I'm sort of an accidental arrival in uh, this world, as in coming into to, to, to publishing and journalism, writing about health was, was a career change for me because I'd been a... Um, an actor and a musician and all of the various other things that you are to to, to, to make those lines of work, you know, viable. Uh, and that wasn't really happening for me. So I thought um, I would try journalism because that's another profession which is obviously, you know, fabulously well paid and uh, and well regarded, you know, just as, just as the internet was starting to completely destroy the business model of journalism. But I got a job uh, working in the publications team for small public health charity, what is now the Royal Society uh, for the Promotion of Health, and I started writing about uh, health and inevitably writing about politics and policy, and then I moved on to become the editor of a magazine called British Journal of Healthcare Management, uh, which was a monthly magazine for the sector. I then started to do that on a freelance basis, started writing for the Health Service Journal, various other publications. And in 2008, I launched my own website, which is called Health Policy Insight. That is a place where I've been writing extensively since. I wrote a column called Cowper's Cut for the Health Service Journal for a long time, and uh, Health Service Journal stopped wanting to publish that. So I put it onto Health Policy Insight and put a paywall on there. And that is where I do quite a lot of my writing now. Also write regularly for the British Medical Journal, for Civil Service World, and for The Guardian and The Spectator. That's a great range of publications to write for and show that kind of policy work, which is so critical, I think, to, to healthcare at the moment. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's, it's an inevitable, interesting and political field. As soon as you start to observe how the NHS is run, you're looking at really the plumbing of two things, which is uh, plumbing of power and the plumbing of money. And most of looking at health policy and politics 
is, is really about those two things. Um, and it's great to be sort of considering what this means in practical terms for nurses, because, of course, you know, the nursing workforce is, is the backbone of any health service. And uh, obviously, we currently have quite significant workforce shortages in the nursing sector. So even though I know that there is some additional recruitment, uh, my understanding from the latest data is that we're still short of about 10,000 nurses in substantive jobs in this country. And obviously, as the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic continue to resonate and demand that has been suppressed because of the need to treat uh, COVID patients very urgently, is now returning into a system that was already facing very high demand anyway. The NHS waiting list backlog was 4.2 million before COVID even arrived, which is the inevitable effect of a 10-year period from 2010 to 2019, when the NHS had the slowest sustained rises in its budget in its entire history. So the current state of the service, and therefore of nursing in this country, is probably not very surprising to anybody who's been, who's been following the facts. We're also joined by Lara Kimona, the RCN's Associate Director of Policy and Public Affairs. Hello, Lara. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm lucky to be sipping hot coffee. It's cold today, so I'm actually really great. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, good morning to you both, Rachel and Andy. Good morning, Lara. Good morning. Lara, what brought you to work at the RCN and what has kept you working in nursing policy? What a great question. I started my public policy career in nursing actually 20 years ago in an NGO here in the UK. And just a few years ago, came back um, and began work for the Royal College of Nursing. So much has changed. Um, and in some ways, some things haven't changed at all. But there are challenges everywhere for the profession. But I think that the incredible dynamism and complexity and expertise of nursing has never been more important to people's lives and it feels to me, at least in my lifetime, never more visible. And listen, one of my earliest memories is being taught by a nurse how to give subcutaneous injections. I was a child carer. So I, I know everyone has a personal relationship often when they talk about why they work for nursing or in nursing. But ultimately, um, I'm a professional advocate for universal health coverage. And that will never, ever happen without enough nurses leading the way, either here in the UK or globally. And so that's really why I'm here. And also because, you know, the nurses will have me. <laughs> That's wonderful, Lara. Thank you. As a Royal College, as well as a trade union, the RCN is not aligned to any political party, but it is clearly engaged in political activity, um, as are many nurses who may be members of a whole range of political parties or, or of none. Andy, you've talked about how politics is critical in, in health provision. Should nurses and other healthcare professionals be politically aware and engaged? Inevitably, somebody who writes about uh, politics and policy is going to probably suggest that, that, that I think they should. Uh, and I think they are, uh, because the actual real world consequences of economic decisions which in a, our universal tax-funded healthcare system uh, are taken by politicians, frame the environment in which they work. They frame the resources that are available to them. They frame the level of vacancies that they're, you know, that which mean that they're either working alongside colleagues who are working through agencies or, or doing bank shifts. And I was very struck by something which um, quite a senior clinician said. He was feeding into some work around recovery from the NHS recovery from the pandemic. And he'd been talking to 
a nurse manager of a clinical unit in a hospital. And he was he, he was saying to her, you know, what's the level of extra staffing that you'd like to see in an NHS that, that's been put, that we're hearing promises is going to be put on a, a sound, you know, economic footing again. And this nurse manager turned around and said, you know, the truth is I'd just like to have enough now. I'd like to have an adequate number of nurses now. For nurses who are who are who are listening to this podcast, who will I guess have have you know experienced the pressures that come onto anybody in any of the caring professions when there simply are not sufficient staff available. The unavailability of sufficient staff isn't isn't an accident. They haven't forgotten to employ people. They're trying to work within an extremely constrained budget as a result of political choices. I think that's one of the things that we're hearing more and more from our members is that pressure on staffing and and those are, are political choices where where we put resources is a is a political choice and often it's not even that a particular organisation doesn't have the budget to employ nurses it's that at the moment the nurses simply aren't out there. One of the issues is that if we haven't been training sufficient numbers of nurses for a long time and we haven't predictable things happen and if people are retiring early or or leaving the profession predictable things happen to staff numbers and i'm sure we'll move on to talk about in in terms of the new health and care bill before parliament why there are essentially no provisions with regards to the workforce uh, in the bill and when the former health secretary and the chair of the commons's health and social care committee jeremy hunt tried to add an amendment to the bill to put a requirement on the Department for Health and Social Care to uh, publish workforce data every two years uh, showing people in training and therefore the likely future shape of the workforce, that that was actually opposed by the government and that did not pass. These are the consequences of getting into a situation where we haven't trained a sufficient number of nurses at a point where healthcare recruitment is now an international business, uh, the, the availability of sufficient trained healthcare staff is a problem for all health systems. You know, it is a global problem. Anyone who's read uh, the book by uh, Dr. Mark Bricknell, um, uh, you know, former senior NHS uh, figure and now the head of health for KPMG, he, his book Human Solving the Workforce Crisis in Healthcare gives a very good summary of, uh, of the situation. Uh, and workforce problems in the NHS, we've seen them before. They're a long time coming and they're a long time going. And they're expensive. So, Laura, what do we really mean by being politically engaged or active? Is professional activism something different to political activism? So these questions have both philosophical and practical answers, don't they? And depending on who you ask, you'll probably get a different version um, of what those things mean. I think Andy's already covered it a bit when he said he's basically re- reminded us that there are so many ways that politics and political choices affect the day to day lives of people who are working in the nursing profession in both health and care services. So this is not just the NHS. Let's remember, we've already touched on the lack of workforce, the lack of safe staffing. We haven't discussed or mentioned anything about the moral injury people are experiencing or terms and conditions not being good good enough. But there are also really beautiful examples of the converse in terms of nurses being politically active and politically engaged. And um, I'm thinking of RCN members years ago, triggering the development of the very first Sharps legislation in Europe, creation of staffing legislation coming online in different parts of the UK in various forms, 
recently overturning the immigration health surcharge. And all of these political elements, conversely, were have been directly affecting what happens in nursing practice and do. This is a very personal view, but for me, as someone who has long direct lived experience without access to health care, to me, the very act of nursing as a professional practice is deeply political. But I think pulling back in overall terms, nurses have incredible expertise and you know undertake really complex practice. And their experiences, their expertise, their lived experience, they see firsthand how health inequalities affect people's lives. And while resolving the socioeconomic determinants of health certainly doesn't stop with nursing, it's not just a nursing issue, it's political. And I think that I would define political engagements overall as promoting a quality of life in a community through political and non-political processes. And alongside that, I would define professional activism as the engagement of skilled and competent professionals using strategic campaigning to achieve goals. And so in nursing, this is nurses coming together to assess a need and identify a problem, designing and implementing a plan to address the issue, evaluating that and repeating that until the problem is solved. And so I think about, imagine what would happen if all nurses and nursing staff across the profession, across all settings, came together to solve these issues in this way. Um, accountability, quality care, you know, economic policy, staffing, workplace violence, it would change the world. It, it will change the world. <laughs> And that would be an amazing voice of coming together. But do you think that the experience of the pandemic has changed the level of political engagement or activism in the profession? Hearing from our members, um, you know, everyone's exhausted, right? Um, And it can be extra difficult to speak out and advocate at times in which your own personal and professional well-being is compromised. But there has never been a more relevant and important moment for the voice of the nursing profession to be heard. So, I think um, I'm seeing people find their passion, whatever that is. And I can say that whatever people's definitions of political engagement, the sky's definitely the limit for a nurse who wants to work in policy um, and seeking to set the direction and action of what affects the profession, working in national bodies and organizations to influence public policy. And definitely we need more nurses in parliament for those of you who are out there listening and considering it. The presence of professional nurses in political life is so important, right? Not just as a role model to encourage those coming behind, but to be able to bring nursing expertise um, as central to public policy decisions. I mean, one of the reasons why I love nursing and health policy more broadly is that it intersects with essentially everything else that society experiences. And there's nursing expertise in every pocket of life, right? So everywhere people live and work, um, there are nurses, you know, and there's nursing expertise to be drawn into policy debates about what should be happening Um, to improve people's lives. One of the listeners to our podcast asked us about the RCN's position on the health and care bill. Laura, I'm going to come back to you on that in a minute. But first, Andy, can you tell us what the key features of the bill are for you as a commentator on on health policy? And in what way it will differ from what we've got now, I guess? Now, I was leaked to the entire text of the, of, the, of the white paper that led to the bill, and I put that up on Health Policy Insight. And the first thing I realised when I was reading it was that what effectively has happened is it's a power grab by the Secretary of State. The Lansley legislation said if we're going to create the NHS Commissioning Board, NHS England, and make it independent and reduce political interference in the NHS, then the Secretary of State must not interfere. And it was the one bit of the Lansley reforms which I think has sort of attracted 
I think, a reasonable measure of support across the across the NHS. And the current bill before Parliament reverses that. So fundamentally, it, it reintroduces to the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care the power to intervene in a very wide range of circumstances. Uh, so not just in terms of controversial reconfigurations of services or uh, hospital provision, but, but much more widely. The, 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 effectively, the Secretary of State for Health will become re-enabled to interfere in the decisions of NHS England very widely indeed. The legislation largely gives the NHS what it asks for in terms of putting the competitive market mechanisms to bed, putting you know, euthanizing them. But it also reintroduces the power of the Secretary of State for Health to interfere really across the patch and really without any very significant restraint on him or her, uh, currently Sajid Javid, obviously. And that's a bold move, I think, at a time when the NHS's performance is very objectively struggling because of the backlog, because of the disruption of COVID, because of, you know, effectively a decade of austerity funding. It's really interesting to watch the political noises coming out of the government at the moment. If you've been reading the papers over this last week, you will certainly have seen reports of the cabinet making a lot of noise about how the NHS doesn't really deliver and it's not, uh, you know, it's got to do better with this extra money. And it feels very much as if the government has no particular policy plans for the NHS, other than to shout at it a bit louder. And so the Secretary of State is going to become more explicitly responsible for the performance of the NHS if this legislation passes, during a period of time when the performance of the NHS is very unlikely to be improving, and certainly unlikely to be improving quickly. So the politics of that, I think, are going to be well worth watching. A lot of people think the bill is trying to privatise the NHS. Why is that? That will be because they haven't read it um, or, you know, have got an ideological axe to grind because the bill really does the complete opposite of that. Um, it, it is removing the market mechanisms from the system of how the NHS operates. I mean, what is the NHS? So the NHS is fundamentally a, mean, a tax-funded means of providing universal health care. So the NHS has effectively an uncapped liability for population health. So if you're talking about privatising the NHS, the private sector does not want to assume that kind of risk because the private sector is not stupid and it realises that it couldn't possibly make profits from that approach to delivering healthcare. So, you know, the thing that people could claim if they were thinking about this properly, is that the government was going to abolish the NHS. Now, that claim is never made because it's nonsense, because the NHS is highly popular with the British people and has been highly popular for you know decades. If you go back and look at the various opinion polls, Ipsos Mori's done lots of these, you know, the NHS is consistently cited as one of the things people are most proud of in, in this country. So I- imagine the political party that makes a serious proposal to abolish the NHS. That's not going to happen. Lara, the BMA has said that this is the wrong bill at, at the wrong time and has, has actively opposed the bill. Um, the RCM has taken a different position. Can you explain what that is and why we're in a different place to the BMA and to some others with regards to the bill? 
Yeah, well, the BMA is a member-led organization, just like we are, and it was their elected member body that determined their position to the bill, just like our elected members have done with us. Um, And actually, despite the apparent differences in the overall position, um, aspects of our position are roughly similar. For example, we're both explicitly clear that the bill doesn't do anywhere near enough to address the concerns of our members in tackling the workforce crisis. Overall, the Royal College of Nursing's position on the bill is that this kind of legislation doesn't come around often. And our elected members have made it really clear the positioning that we should seek in the bill. And there are there's a very long list of things that we would like to be different. Just give us some of the highlights of those, particularly probably around workforce, as we mentioned earlier, that there's little in in the bill as it currently stands about the workforce that's so critical for services. Yeah, well, I, I want to jump back just a tiny bit to the bit where there was some consultation a couple of years ago about what NHS national bodies wanted to see in a future piece of legislation, because I need to give a big shout out to the members of the Royal College of Nursing. So that original set of proposals didn't include anything significant on workforce at all. And tens, I think 10,000, uh, just over 10,000 of our members wrote in to that consultation process. And it was due to that, that the report from NHS leaders you know, to the government um, included a specific requirement to look at the roles and responsibilities around workforce, right? So uh, it is nurses and nursing staff who did that. Um, and in terms of what we we would like to see amended in the bill, I mean, the workforce bit in particular has two strands to it. The first bit is around a legal duty to assess uh, what's actually needed, both in service and population, and to publish those requirements so that they're transparent and available and visible, and to do so across health and care services. And the second strand, a, a different amendment that our members are seeking, is to set out in law that the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care has full accountability for demand-led planning and supply of that health and care workforce. So um, some people argue that the existing legal duties on the Secretary of State with regards to workforce are sufficient for purpose, but it's the view of our members, you know, and of nurses really clearly that if that were the case, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in. Um, And so uh, a core part of what we're seeking, um, although it was voted down in the House of Commons, we did put both of those, we supported both of those amendments. There's a chance to do something differently in the House of Lords. Um, But I think something else that's absolutely worth drawing attention to for listeners, particularly those who are nurses and working in nursing, is that we are fighting to secure uh, recognition within the new board structures for an executive nurse leader to be there, which is definitely, um, you know, something that we we can't not have happen, given that uh, nurses comprise the largest professional proportion of the workforce, right? Um, They absolutely need to be in that room making decisions, strategic and operational, that have serious implications for how care is designed and delivered. So there are lots of other smaller component parts, but those are, I think, two of the the things that are most important to draw attention to. And Laura, you said that the amendments around workforce weren't passed and the bill is now in the Lords. What are the opportunities now for the RCN, for others to influence what, what happens next? So the bill is about to be debated in Lords, right, having been previously debated in the bill committee and then in the House of Commons. And um, thousands of members of the Royal College of Nursing wrote to their MPs in the last cycle of this process to share their concerns about the bill and to ask for specific amendments. And there will be more opportunities for our members to uh, communicate directly with the House of Lords as further amendments are considered. 
you know, there's such a clear and unequivocal national and international evidence base that registered nurse staffing levels have direct impact on the safety and quality of patient care, right? And on comorbidities and mortality. So it's it's fundamental to nurses and to nursing that we get back in the House of Lords um, amendments around accountability for workforce and around um, a legal requirement to assess what that workforce need is as a matter of urgency, really, and for patient safety. So a number of amendments to the bill were put forward last week and most of those were defeated. Andy, were there any of those amendments that do you think might have made this a, a better bill? Well, I think without any doubt, the the, the workforce amendment, which, which, which Laris uh, mentioned, the nurses' role in, in driving the importance of that up the agenda, is a massive missed opportunity. When the bill goes to the Lords, I think it's next Tuesday, interesting list of speakers in the debate. Uh, so Lord Lansley is down to speak, and it'll be very interesting to yeah. see his reaction to a bill that, that, that guts his uh, legislation uh, to a very large degree. But also giving his maiden speech in the Lords is Lord Stevens of Birmingham, uh, the artist formerly known as Simon Stevens. So it's going to be extremely interesting to see how he uses his political heft and influence with regards to the issue of, of workforce planning, because there is no doubt that the workforce strategy planning that we have at the moment is is utterly unfit for purpose. It, it is demonstrably so because we have a workforce crisis and we've been having a workforce crisis for some years. This is not new. So insofar as there's been an increase in NHS funding, which is you know still not to the levels that independent organisations such as the Health Foundation, the Nuffield Trust and the King's Fund uh, have found that it would need to be to start to recover NHS performance towards what it should be, according to the, the NHS constitution and what we are entitled to, to, to expect it to do. The key issue is that until you fix the workforce crisis, and, and firstly, you give current staff who are very overstretched, very stressed, often traumatised by experiences they've had working through the pandemic. And Laura touched earlier on the issue of, of moral injury, very, very important issue for, for the workforce in general. Effectively, you can tip in as much money as you like to the budget, but if you actually haven't got the workforce on which to spend it, then it, it, things are not going to start getting better at a particularly helpful rate. The other thing which which I, I have to give a give a shout out to is the need to spend more effectively on management and on technology. Because the NHS, as I say, the Lansley reforms took 45% out of the spending on uh, management in the NHS. And I'm sure it won't have escaped people's attention that the four-hour waiting standard in A&E, which was consistently being met up to sort of 2010-2011, has consistently not been being met since that point. And one of the reasons for that is quite likely to be a reduction in budgets on waiting list managers, on people who understand flow through hospitals. And, and, and I think we need actually, obviously, we need both to increase the workforce in nursing and in other disciplines, and we need to improve the management of the system overall 
so that it uses all of its resources smartly and well. And, you know, that is going to require investments in working IT, computers that nurses and their fellow colleagues use to do their jobs, which don't take 10 minutes to boot up because they're trying to run Windows 95 in 2021. So, yeah, workforce, very, very important. Other things are important too, but workforce is a big one. So, Laura, why was the workforce amendment so important to the RCN and to nurses? Oh, hopefully I won't monologue about this. There's so many reasons, Julie. But let's say why is this amendment so important? Because efforts are nowhere near over. Anyone listening to this conversation will likely be familiar with lines in the public space put out there by political actors, the constant rebuttal that there are more nurses than ever. To suggest that just because there are more registered nurses than we've had in the past really completely misses the reality of what's happened and is happening to our population, right? And the NHS is only one part of the great services our patients need and expect. And just because there are more nurses than we've had historically fails to recognize that our population is bigger, it's different, and it's more complex than it's been in the past. And Andy's um, referenced this already, but the demands on health and care services have also far outstripped any increase in nursing numbers. Since 2009, there's been about just under a 9% increase in RNs, and over a similar period, activity levels in hospitals and communities have increased by almost a third, with like a third more A&E admissions. So at the moment, we don't even have publicly available figures for how big the nursing shortage actually is. So when it's said, for example, that there are 38,000 vacancies in the NHS in nursing, that is the number of posts that are vacant, but not necessarily the number that we would need to meet anything close to staffing for safe and effective care. So these vacancies can't be understood as a complete picture of the shortage. And identifying this can only be based on data, which sets out the existing and future needs of the service aligned with proper planning, right? So how many nursing roles there are at the moment is driven currently by government decisions on available funding. And part of that solution has to be a legal duty to compel government to publish accurate data about how big the shortages are and what's really needed. And to paraphrase the words of the Public Accounts Committee, you know, I think they said we have vague political pledges about 50,000 nurses and the government doesn't have a credible plan to deliver those nurses. We're waiting to see that plan. It's supposed to be published in the autumn of 2021. It'll be interesting to see what's in there by way of assumptions. Nurses and nursing staff and the college's members have known they've been in a crisis for a number of years. And we've had a vacancy rate in England at about 10% in the NHS, but not enough action's been taken. So I think that given the fact that over decades, there have been workforce issues in health and public health and in social care, The scale of the crisis and the lack of sustained political response over a number of governments demonstrates that the existing powers and duties in law are just not fit for purpose. And I know our elected members in particular have been really clear that patient safety should be the primary concern of every legislator, right? Just as it is for every nurse and every nursing staff member. So putting accountability in law with the Secretary of State for sufficient provision of the workforce should be the primary intention of anyone who cares about this bill, right, in our population. Thanks for that, Laura. And that really does um, embody why workforce accountability is so important. Um, But even though the amendment fell in the Commons and is going to be considered in the Lords, it's attracted a lot of support from RCN members who emailed their MPs about the nursing workforce crisis. Returning to the earlier discussion that we had, what does this say about the levels of political engagement in the profession? 
it tells us that, uh, you know, the nursing profession is prepared and ready to speak out and that it's actively doing so more and more in visible ways that matter to public policy debate and dialogue and certainly in, in politics and not just in rhetoric. I mean, one of the examples I referenced before about the fact that it was, you know, the college's members who forced the issue of workforce into the dialogue about this bill that that was art that was nurses and nursing support workers who did that you know and i think that it's a real challenge right campaigning for change and and being part of any social movement must be especially challenging um, as a nurse or as a nursing support worker working in these conditions but we absolutely need people to bring their expertise and their voice into this space right because it does make a difference and I recognize, especially as a long-term campaigner myself and a policy wonk, it can be really hard to participate in things that don't produce instantaneous results, right? And we didn't get into this situation overnight, so we're not going to be able to solve it overnight. But the more that people speak out, um, the more likely it is that we're going to be able to affect meaningful change. So like I said before, we need more nurses in policy, and we definitely need more nurses in politics. Thank you, Lara. And I think that we could talk for much longer, but sadly, we're running out of time. So we at the end of the podcast, we'll be back in two weeks. And we'd love to know what you would like us to talk about. So tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing by tweeting us at the RCN with the hashtag nursing matters. And we'll do our best to cover them in future episodes. But for this week, thanks to our special guests, Andy Cowper, Thank you, Andy. Thank you very much for inviting me. And Lara Carmona. Oh, thanks so much, Rachel and Julie. I appreciate it. And thanks to my co-host, Julie Green. And thank you for having me again, Rachel. I've really enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about nursing matters. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you next time.